Please open your Bibles to Matthew 28. We wrapped up our Old Testament tour, that meta-narrative, the, the story about all other, that defines all other stories. We certainly did not do an exhaustive tour of the Old Testament. You keep reading and studying the Old Testament. But we're going to move to the Gospel of Luke in September. The next two Sundays, though, Nathan and I wanted to do a two-part series on discipleship to introduce the need for this class that we're teaching in the fall. So Matthew 28, 18 and 19 are typically known as the Great Commission. Jesus giving that commission, that charge to his disciples. And typically, we roll out the Great Commission during a missions moment or when we're commissioning missionaries to go out in the field. And that might lead you to believe that the Great Commission is for overseas missionaries. It's not. Be making the case today that all of us who are in Christ are to be disciples and make disciples. Be disciples and make disciples. Or you could think of it this way. We're all to make disciples, and the first disciple you should be making is yourself. Make yourself a disciple of Christ, and then teaching others to be disciples of Christ. So here's here's the Great Commission, Matthew 28. I'm going to start in verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. When they saw him, they worshipped him. For those who say Christ wasn't God, here's one of your texts. Anytime somebody fell down in worship of somebody who wasn't God, they were told immediately to get up and not worship. And Jesus does not correct his disciples here. He allows them to worship him. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's also the most conspicuous Evidence of the Trinitarian nature of God. Baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not that this is the only verse that talks about the Trinity. I want to call your attention first to the four alls in the Great Commission. One of the ways that we interpret our Bible rightly is to look for words that are repeated. They're repeated for a purpose. All authority has been given to Jesus. Well, who who gave him all authority? Obviously, God the Father. God the Father has that authority. He's given it to his Son to have all authority in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. This is a comprehensive commission. All the nations. Nathan is going to focus in on this part next week. 
the Greek word ethne, he's going to tell us what, what that means. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe or obey all that I commanded. That's, that's a lot. That's a big task. And some were doubtful, it says. But Jesus says, And lo, I will be with you always. Always. Even to the end of the age. He will be with us as we fulfill the Great Commission. We do not need to be doubtful, scared, discouraged. He is with us and enabling us to complete the task. And you, when you consider how far Christianity has come from 11 disciples to billions of people around the globe, you see that certainly Jesus is in this and working with us and empowering us. There's no way man could have spread this without it being true, without the power of the Holy Spirit enabling us to fulfill the Great Commission. But I want to call your attention to four other things in the Great Commission. Four verbs. Four verbs. I was just thinking, is, is, uh, is Curtis Giles here? He's like a linguistics major. He's like, oh, right. Where's our English teacher? He's preaching on verbs. Um, you need to understand a little about the Greek language in order to get the gist of the sermon today. In Greek, the verb drives the meaning. And so we're always looking for the main verb. And there's four verbs here. So which one's the main verb? Is it, is it go? Because that's, that's the first verb. Oh, there's Curtis. <laughs> look for you back there. You, you move to the front of the class. Is it baptized? I mean, we're Baptists. Is it teaching? This church puts an enormous emphasis on teaching. We dedicate the bulk of the Sunday service to teaching and a whole table over there to teaching. Well, since it's a sermon about make disciples, I think you've already figured out what the main verb is. The, the main verb is make disciples. The other three verbs are what's called participles. They're, they're auxiliary verbs that go along with the main verb. The focus, the thrust of the Great Commission is on making disciples, which is far more difficult than getting a profession of faith and dipping someone in the water and then I guess you're on your own. Yes, we're evangelicals, so rightly there is an emphasis on people making a profession of faith, receiving Jesus as Savior, but they must receive Him as Lord and Savior. Everyone is already a disciple of somebody or something. Everyone is a worshiper. Everybody worships something. You can't not worship. You can't not be discipled. Everyone's a theologian. Everybody has ideas about God. Everybody's a philosopher. 
And by extension, because people are watching us, everybody is a teacher or discipler. The question is, to whom are you a disciple? Who's your teacher? Who's teaching you theology? Who's teaching you philosophy? Who's teaching you how to worship? And so Jesus comes in and says, all authority has been given to me under heaven and earth. For you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. So implicit in the command is that we're to make disciples of Jesus, teaching them to obey everything he's commanded, taking every thought captive for Jesus Christ. The New Testament puts it that way. In its simplest form, a disciple is a learner. The Greek word's mathetes. And the verb make disciples is really just the verbal form of that noun. There's no make in the Greek. The verb's mathetuo. It's the verbal form of disciple. I want you to think differently about discipleship. Our mindset is that you get saved and then you become a disciple. Well, when? Well, for some people it could be months or years. This idea that I made Jesus my Savior when I was six at VBS, but I didn't make him my Lord until I was 25 and graduated college or something like that. They go hand in hand. Look at the Great Commission again. Go and make disciples. How do you do that? By baptizing and teaching to obey. It's a comprehensive process. And the process starts with somebody coming to the acknowledgement that they have not been a disciple of Jesus. They've been their own teacher, their own rabbi, their own God. It's not just that you point out to them, oh, I've lied or I've cheated. Oh, so you're a sinner. You need Jesus to save you. We sin because we're sinners. The individual sins we commit are because we're sinful by nature. It's our sin nature that causes the wrath of God to fall on us. When you become saved, as, as we like to say euphemistically, what is really going on is that God has regenerated you, given you new life, new eyes to see, new spiritual eyes to see. And you see for the first time in your life that you have sinned primarily by not acknowledging the lordship of Jesus. There's a misnomer in evangelicalism that I made Jesus my Lord on this date. People, you don't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. He is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Whether you bow the knee to him or not, he is Lord. And he's a good Lord. And he's merciful and loving. 
and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. When we come to Jesus, we submit to his lordship. If you say, I made Jesus Lord, then you have authority over him. Hey, guess what, Jesus? I've decided you can be my Lord today. No, that's not how it works. No more than you're going to say to your boss at work, you get to be my boss today. Coming to Jesus means I confess that I have sinned primarily by not acknowledging the lordship of Jesus and thus I have not been living my life in obedience to God. I need to be a disciple of Jesus. I haven't been. I repent of that, receive his forgiveness for that sinfulness. That sinfulness is going to cause all those other individual sins. But the root of our sinfulness that we commit is this sinful heart that wants to be our own Lord. That wants to do things our own way. Be our own teacher. Make up our theology as we go along. Therefore, when somebody comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, they're in essence saying, I want to be a disciple. We shouldn't baptize anyone until they understand that you are now signing up for a lifetime of discipleship. It's not, let's get them dunked and hopefully they'll come to church. Hopefully they'll want to be discipled. If they get baptized because they just wanted a get-out-of-hell-free card, or what we call fire insurance, but I have no interest really in knowing what Jesus said or taught, we have not done our job in evangelism. That's not the gospel at all. No good news there if you go back to your sinful life. Being a disciple entails that You've received forgiveness through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Yes, we get that. Yes, we preach that. But you're also saying, I choose to be baptized into his teaching as a disciple. I'm immersing myself into the teaching of Jesus. Because Jesus is the ultimate teacher, philosopher, theologian. He's really even the ultimate worshiper. How's that? Because he perfectly obeyed the Father. Once you are discipled by Jesus, you need not look for any other discipler. There is no better discipler. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Baptism, then, is a part of discipleship, not separate from discipleship. This, this could be a huge paradigm shift for you this morning, especially if you grew up, quote-unquote, Baptist, where the focus in, used to be, maybe in the Baptist faith, get everybody baptized. You ask people, when were you saved? Well, I was baptized on this date. That's not what I asked. You get saved before you're baptized, not when you're baptized. Are you sure of your salvation? Yeah, I have my baptism card here in my wallet. That, that, that's not assurance. 
I will get to the importance and significance of baptism, but in the meantime, I don't want anyone squirming in their seat and thinking, so my baptism wasn't important? No, your baptism is very important. The Lord said, go make disciples and baptize. Your baptism is important. Jesus was baptized, but did his baptism save him? No. Did he need saving? No. So there's nothing salvific about the act of baptism. Your baptism doesn't save you. In fact, the, the most prolific baptizer with water of all time, John the Baptist, said this. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him. You think this would be a good thing. People are coming to get baptized. Lots of them, hundreds of them, thousands of them. And here's what he says to the crowd. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What, what did he mean by that? We understand the picture. We live in brush fire territory. You get a brush fire, the wrath to come, and all the critters run to the water. Or in this case, slither. Don't think you can run to the water and get dunked and escape the wrath to come. Without bearing fruits of repentance. See, he says, therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Don't get baptized till you've repented from this thinking that you can save yourself, that you're self-righteous, that you're good enough for heaven. You'd, you'd think, okay, Paul probably was really into baptism, right? First Corinthians 1.17, For Christ did not send me to baptize. <gasps> Paul wasn't a, a Baptist, I guess. But to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. The context of this statement is people in the Corinthian church were bragging about who baptized them. Oh, I was baptized by Paul. I was baptized by Apollos. And then they were saying, I follow Paul. Well, I follow Apollos. And then some people said, well, I follow Jesus. And they were trying to one-up each other. And Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize very many people. He, he could remember like one name. He's like, I think maybe Stephanus. But I'm glad I didn't baptize a bunch of you if that's the attitude you're going to have. I was baptized as an infant in the Lutheran church after I came to saving faith, I came under the conviction that baptism should be by believers. And so when Jennifer and I left for seminary, we both got baptized at Grace Community Church where the master seminary is. I have to confess to you that I really wanted to be baptized by John MacArthur. I didn't know much about the Bible at that time. I just wasn't taught a lot of the Bible. I was going to seminary to learn the Bible. I had no idea about 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I was taking that attitude of, wouldn't that be cool to say I was baptized by John MacArthur? And God, who is kind and gracious and merciful and has a really interesting sense of humor, John MacArthur was not the one baptizing that night. Pastor Rick McLean, the pastor of Special Needs Ministries, was... Yes, it does. And I, and I don't mean to be offensive to anyone struggling with special needs. The point being, the salvation happened long before that baptism. 
Jesus said, if anyone wishes to follow me, he must die to himself and pick up his cross. That's, that's daily discipleship. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You still have to wear the yoke. You know, the heavy wooden apparatus that goes around the neck of a beast of burden so you can control it and guide it and lead it. Jesus didn't save us so we would be without a yoke. He said, take, take my yoke on you. It's, it's, it's light because he does all the work for us in salvation. And we find that his commands lead to great blessing and peace and fulfillment. But we're still to wear a yoke. So then, what is the significance of baptism? Being that this is a Baptist church and there's a baptismal font behind me and we love baptizing people. Baptism pictures three things in the, in the Bible. It's, it's used in three different contexts. Number one, and probably most importantly, it's an outward symbol of the inward reality that through faith in Christ I've been washed clean. I've been washed clean of my sins. Acts twenty two sixteen. Be baptized and have your sins washed away. Now, does the water wash away your sins? No, absolutely not. But water does wash things away. It's a good metaphor for cleansing. It's an outward picture of an inward reality. When I received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, He washed me clean of all my sins. But I still sin. Positionally, as far as God is concerned, you get Jesus' perfect record. You get his perfect record. You are justified through faith in Christ. And so baptism becomes a, a, a wonderful symbol for being washed clean. But it doesn't wash away sin, although some denominations teach that there is some kind of salvific power in the baptism. To wash away, uh, the Catholic faith would say, original sin. The Lutheran Church, which was reformed, Martin Luther wanted reform in the Catholic Church, he said there's some kind of impartation of saving grace at your baptism. But he taught by faith alone in Christ alone are you justified. And so sometimes when we read Martin Luther, he, he, he kind of is quasi-Protestant Catholic somewhere in between. And you're like, well, Martin Luther, then, then what part of the water is saving you? And so he almost kind of takes both positions and blends them. Historically, he was afraid that people wouldn't trust in the Reformation if they got rid of infant baptism because mortality rates were very high. And people were afraid if their baby died before they were baptized, they, they wouldn't go to heaven. And so he kind of made a compromise. Something happens during baptism. We're not exactly sure what. But ultimately what saves you, Martin Luther said, was your faith in Jesus Christ, which we would affirm. That leads to, you know, 
honest questions like, well, if, if, if the water does save you in some way, then why wait three weeks? I mean, let's baptize them right out of the birth canal. What happens if something happens to the baby between here and here? You know, that's when Martin Luther would often say things like, oh, you're just being ridiculous now. If you can't understand spiritual things, then keep your day job. And you're like, come on, Martin. He's had one of those larger-than-life personalities. That's an honest question. If something actually happens in your baptism, shouldn't we just secretly baptize everyone? And that's what happened to me at camp one year. A camp called Mount Cross in the Santa Cruz Mountains. This was back in my, my Lutheran days. And they lined us all up in front of the pool. And they told us the gospel, and they said... Who wants to go to heaven to see Jesus and not go to hell? I mean, who's not going to raise their hand to that question? Is that one, like, stubborn kid in the back? I don't want to go to heaven. And so they led us all in the sinner's prayer, and they dipped huge branches into the pool and sprinkled us all. Many went home wet that day. Very few went home saved. People may have placed saving faith in Jesus that day. I wouldn't suggest that's how you go about evangelizing, though. It sends mixed messages. But they were just being consistent with their theology, which is get everyone baptized. The Great Commission says to baptize people, we're baptizing. But you don't baptize until you've received Jesus as Lord and Savior And we would teach when you see fruits of repentance. Some evidence that they've truly decided to follow Jesus. That's the way we do it in our own home. We teach here that you're pastors in your own home. You help decide when your children should be baptized. In our house, we want to see fruits of repentance. We want to see a desire for them to follow Jesus. We don't want to arm twist a profession of faith out of our kids. And we won't let the younger children get baptized right after an older one does. Because, ooh, cool. I want to do that. But we, we, we can wait. We will encourage every profession of faith. But we want to see those fruits of repentance. Well, is there a certain age? No, there is no certain age. If we taught last week that God is sovereign even over when we come to saving faith, then one of your younger children may come to faith before one of your older children. The second thing baptism pictures is it's an outward symbol of the inward reality. It's always this outward symbol of something going on spiritually. That I was buried with Christ in baptism... When I put my faith in Christ, I died with him to sin. And when he was raised three days later, I come out of the water raised to walk a new life. That I've died to the old man and now the new man in me, as Paul calls it, is living. I'm mortifying the flesh. Who remembers that old school term? I'm mortifying the flesh. I'm killing off that part of me that is sinful, and I'm cultivating godliness. 
And so baptism becomes a beautiful picture of dying with, with Christ and raised to walk a new life. Sometimes we say that, right, when we baptize. Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk a new life. 1 Corinthians, sorry, Romans 6.3, Romans 6.3, Paul says, You were baptized into Christ Jesus, baptized into his death and resurrection. Now, you, you see where with number one, sprinkling maybe could, you could get away with sprinkling. Because the Old Testament talks about on the Day of Atonement, the high priest going into the Holy of Holies and splattering blood on the mercy seat and even splattering blood on the people, I guess, in the front row. So none of the Baptists, right, would get sprinkled because they're all in the, the back. No, 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 laugh, no laughter today. Back row Baptists, right? Peter makes reference to being sprinkled. When we talk about our justification, sprinkling makes sense. But we just said you're not saved when you're baptized. You're not saved when you're baptized. Sprinkling makes no sense with the, I was buried with Christ, raised to walk a new life. You need to go under the water and back out of the water. Jesus went under the water when he came back out. The Holy Spirit descended on him. And so we baptize by immersion. And I, I'm always careful to try to get their entire face under the water, which is hard to do in our tank, especially after seven baptisms and the gowns have soaked up all the water and the last person can't quite get under the water. But it's not like if they don't go all the way under and their nose is sticking out that their nose won't be sanctified. <laughs> this, this isn't Achilles, you know, this isn't mythology. The picture, though, is buried with Christ, raised to walk a new life. The third picture is baptism is an outward symbol of the inward reality that I have been immersed into a whole new way of thinking and living. And again, sprinkling doesn't work there. In fact, that's the problem with a lot of people. They, they get saved, quote-unquote, and then they just settle for a little sprinkling of doctrine and teaching they don't want to immerse themselves into the teachings of the bible the new testament uses this picture first corinthians 10 2 paul says the the israelites were baptized into moses in the cloud and in the sea what does that mean how do you baptize someone into a cloud it means they were they were immersed into Moses' teaching, the, the law of Moses. They left that pagan Egypt and they were immersed into Moses' teaching. What was Moses teaching them? He was teaching them about God. Everything God revealed to Moses, Moses was teaching them. They were baptized into Moses. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. By one spirit, we, we were all baptized into one body. The Holy Spirit immerses us all into a unified church, unified in doctrine. And so again, immersion is the only thing that makes sense as a picture of being baptized into someone's teaching fully.
All right, so I am officially Baptist now. <laughs> Hallelujah. Yeah. Question then, so when do we baptize? When do we baptize? The answer is after faith and repentance. After saving faith and repentance. And we would like to see fruits of repentance. We would like to see evidence of the Holy Spirit in someone's life. The fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When, when I received Christ, it wasn't until years later that I was actually baptized by immersion. But I was, I tell you, that day I received Christ and it was at a Promise Keepers event, I was baptized into Christ. You ask my wife, I came home so different. I think she thought I was abducted by aliens. Yeah, yeah. Even to the point where she would also admit to you that she was like, hey, wait, I'm the spiritual one in the family. <laughs> when did he get all spiritual? I'm sure she was waiting for it to wear off. You know, like I've gotten my hopes up too many times. But praise the Lord, it stuck. I was baptized into Jesus spiritually years later, actually baptized in water. Now, you don't need to wait that long. But we, we would baptize after repentance and, and faith. Peter, Peter, who denied Jesus three times, even to a lowly slave girl because of his fear of man, that Peter... Peter, when he receives the Holy Spirit after Pentecost, preaches this bold sermon at the temple. And he takes the Jews at the temple through the Old Testament, kind of the way we did. He did like a meta-narrative sermon. And he said, you know, it's all about Messiah. And Messiah came and it was Jesus. And you killed him, this man Jesus. And they were cut to the quick. They were... they. They said, what do we do? What should we do then? And he says, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. There's an election verse. As many as the Lord will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. Received what word? The the whole sermon about Jesus being Lord. And that you need to repent. The, the The whole package. So we see that they didn't baptize people until... They had that change of mind. That's what repentance means literally in the Greek. To change the mind. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Not being raised Baptist when I first came to Country Oaks. And put on my first VBS. And afterwards after all the exhilaration, excitement and. And exhaustion. 
people kept coming up to me and saying, how many decisions for Christ? How many decisions for Christ? How many decisions for Christ? How many baptisms? How many kids did we baptize? And I was not familiar with, with these questions. But I understand in a Baptist church, that's the tradition. I also understand in a, in a Baptist church, altar calls are very precious to people. And they often ask, how come we don't have official altar calls? But long before I got here, Pastor Andy was changing the, the culture of our church. Because he grew up in a cultural Christianity setting in the South where everyone, everyone got saved. But nobody lived like they were saved. And so being careful not to coerce a, profession, a false profession of faith out of people... He has not done a lot of altar calls. It's not to say that we haven't and there aren't appropriate times for it. But the way he tells the story, it was every Sunday and the rest of the Bible was ignored and you got John 3.16 every Sunday. No depth, no discipleship, nobody growing in Christ. And it leads people to believe that I'm good, I'm saved. I'll see you at the bar. Right? You know, that kind of attitude. Saved from what and saved for what? Jesus didn't save us for us to go right back to our old life. So I like to say when people ask how many decisions for Christ were there the week of VBS, I say, I hope millions, every time we choose to say yes to Jesus and no to our flesh, that's a decision for Christ. And I hope that the kids who made a profession of faith in Christ, I hope to, I encourage them to come to church and we hope to see those fruits of repentance. We had 25% of our kids at VBS this year came from uh, what we would call unchurched homes. That's pretty good. Pretty good. One quarter of 300 plus kids. So 75 or so. Now, if, if you received Jesus Christ at a VBS or you answered an altar call, I am in no way diminishing or disparaging that moment. That may authentically be when God regenerated you. But for a lot of people, God had already regenerated them earlier. And they were coming forward to make public testimony or they were reaffirming their faith. You don't have to get saved at an altar call. You don't have to get saved at a VBS. You can get saved right now. Right now. Today is the day of salvation. I need to be a disciple of Christ because I've been my own disciple for way too long and it's brought nothing but misery and ruin. And worse than that, it is sinful to a holy and precious God who gave His Son to die for you. Anyone who says, I don't need to be discipled by Christ, how insulting to God who sent his son to disciple us. Never mind, I got it. No thanks. So how do we make disciples? The Great Commission says, teach them to obey. Well, which commands? 
All of them. That's a tough task. That's comprehensive. Well, that's what the church is for. To equip you to make disciples in your own home, to make disciples of your friends and family and neighbors, all whom the Lord calls to himself to begin the adventure of discipleship. Teach them to obey all that Christ commanded is far more comprehensive than just getting a profession of faith and a baptism. Well, where are all Christ's commands? They're right, they're right here. So we have to teach people the Bible. How to read the Bible, how to interpret the Bible, how to apply the Bible. And that's what Nathan and I want to do in a more um, concentrated form in the fall. You can certainly be discipled by coming Sunday morning and hearing the sermon. You can be discipled by being in a small group. You can be discipled by joining an adult Bible fellowship Sunday morning or the women's Bible study. And all these things are good and you should do those things. Yet we're also finding that until you are required to do a little homework and do some teaching of your own, you don't always own these concepts and principles in the Bible. So there, the cat's out of the bag. There will be homework, the discipleship class, but I think you'll enjoy the homework. Finally, we must always keep the gospel in focus. In the same way that it's wrong to separate baptism from discipleship when it comes to getting saved... It's also wrong to leave salvation at the door when it comes to discipleship. Okay, I got saved. Now now I'm going to go do this other thing. No, the gospel is what motivates you, empowers you to grow in Christ-likeness. If you leave the cross behind in your discipleship, you will end up becoming a moralist or a legalist. You'll, you'll make a Pharisee out of yourself. You need that constant reminder that God chose you. You didn't choose him. God died for you. You didn't die for him. God saved you. You couldn't save yourself. God loves you even when in your discipleship you're growing more slowly than you'd like. In your salvation, God loves you perfectly. Oh, he may not be pleased with what you just did today, but... He doesn't turn off his love for you because you stumbled. And so the gospel is central to everything we do. For the Christian, all of life then becomes discipleship. Remember the four alls at the beginning? It makes sense. It's comprehensive. Discipleship is what it's all about. What are we going to do next? After the discipleship thing. If you're asking that question, you're not hearing me today. It is what we're doing. It's what we do as Christians. We become disciples, we make disciples. We become disciples, we make disciples. Until Jesus returns. And then we're, we become perfected in our discipleship. 53 people have signed up for the parenting class. They think it's a class on parenting. It's a class on discipleship. You're making disciples of these little ones and you're discipling your own heart. It's not about making perfectly obedient kids so you look good. It's not about 
making obedient kids so they'll leave you alone so you can go do what you want to do Friday night. It's about teaching them to follow Jesus as you follow Jesus. Marriage. You thought you got married because this person's going to make me happy every second of the day for the rest of my life. (laughs) Well, that's very sweet. But that's not the purpose of marriage. The Bible tells us the purpose of marriage. It's discipleship on steroids. (laughs) You thought you were a good follower of Christ on your own, wait till you get married and then throw some bambinos into the mix. You'll find out just how inadequate you are of following Christ. It's husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he may sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Men, you're supposed to lead your, your wife in discipleship. Growing in Christ-likeness together. Well, I don't know how to read and interpret the Bible. Then come to the class. Stop sitting around expecting your wife to cook and clean for you as if that's the purpose of marriage. Knowing how to handle money. Discipleship. You, You cannot serve two masters. You can't be discipled by Jesus and your wallet. It doesn't work. And that's how a lot of people live life. I have a great 401k. I have a strong portfolio. I have no debts. And everyone can't stand you. You know, you can have all those things and be discipled by Christ. But when people make that the ultimate thing, they're being discipled by their money. So we're calling this the adventure of discipleship. It really is an adventure. Don't think of it as one more Duty, one more class, one more box to check off. It is life. Discipleship is life. The early church, Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. But the list is headed by apostles' teaching. Discipleship. Paul summarizes his entire ministry like this. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Some translations say complete in Christ or perfected in Christ. That's a tall task. It's not go through these three classes and now you're you're mature in Christ, done. The classes we're going to teach are going to set you on a path for a lifetime of discipleship. So I hope you're convinced this morning that as Christians, we are to be disciples and disciplers. You're wondering, what, to, what do I do? What should I do? I'm a Christian. Maybe you're a new believer. What do I do next? Become, become a disciple. You're already a disciple if you put your faith in Christ. Learn, learn how to be discipled and to make disciples. Are you convinced? It's all about discipleship. I hope I convinced you this morning. You need to be a disciple and you need to learn how to make disciples of others.